Well, thank you so much for coming back again. We've got week uh, two of biblical counseling, an introduction to biblical counseling. And tonight we're going to talk about theological foundations. I mentioned last week that biblical counseling really is about a worldview, understanding and having a worldview that is accurate, that conforms to truth, and then advancing that, suggesting that you understand and know truth well enough to advance that worldview and suggest that other people live their lives off the same truth that you hold so dear. So that's what we uh, were looking at last week. We talked about what is counseling in its simplest form. And so I'm just going to do a little recap. Counseling in its simplest form is someone that has a problem and they find someone else who they believe has a solution and they get together and they talk about these things. Heath Lambert, though, if you remember from last week, he, he upped the stakes on what counseling really is by saying that counseling is a strictly theological discipline. And when, when he says that, he puts it out of the range of secular counselors to even offer anything that would be helpful or beneficial in form of counseling. That counseling has to conform to truth. You know, further than that, we talked about last week that counseling is, in, in fact, part of the very fabric of the church. That it's the duty of every spirit-filled believer. In fact, every person who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, those people are the ones who are competent to counsel because you can point someone to ultimate truth. Counseling then also doesn't require an office. It doesn't require a license. And it doesn't even require the right answers. We talked about that last week because there's a whole bunch of people out there who have the office and have the license, but they have entirely wrong answers. So in its general form, counseling doesn't require right answers because we're just talking about people offering to other people solutions. But what we want are people that will track with the right solutions, true biblical solutions. And finally, as we recap, we can uh, understand last week we talked about biblical counseling articulating a vision of reality that makes sense of the counselee's problems. It affords them hope and it offers a solution. So it's, I see where you're at I see how you got off the tracks. I know, what, I know that we can get you back on the tracks, and I know how to help you do that. That's what biblical counseling wants to offer. My aim tonight is then to present the great necessity of having this accurate biblical worldview and speaking about solid theological foundations that undergird our worldview. So I had an opportunity uh, just over a week ago to see and hear a, a very powerful worldview articulated to me. The worldview came in the form of a graduation ceremony for my cousin, my nephew, actually, Brenton. He was graduating from the Navy SEAL training down in Coronado. And they have a, a, a Navy SEAL ethos. And this ethos is their purpose statement, their warrior way of life, if you will. And it was printed on the ceremonies program. And I had a chance to kind of read through it. It's a call to serve with honor, loyalty, integrity, to, to live a life beyond reproach. Does that sound familiar to you? Because of the heritage passed, listen, because of the heritage passed down by heroes who created a legacy, a proud tradition, and a feared reputation. They're the world's most elite warriors, and they are, in fact, a band of brothers. You know, I'm thankful for them. I'm th thankful for their service to our country. I'm thankful for my, for my nephew. It was nice to be there at that celebration. However, it, I was reminded of how far short that ethos falls from truly uh, being accurate, an accurate understanding of, of reality. They're seeking to create the set-apart man. They consider themselves a common man with an uncommon desire. My nephew said to me, 
uh, in the course of our uh, conversations down there that the divorce rate among Navy SEALs is 90%. 90%. Okay? And in the ethos, say, how, does this, how does that statistic square with the following statement from their ethos? The ethos says this. It says, the ability to control my emotions and my actions regardless of circumstances sets me apart from other men. It goes further to say, and my word is my bond. So clearly there's a, a, a gap between the statement and the declaration that your uh, actions and emotions, regardless of circumstances, can be under control when you have a problem with your wife and the conflict erupts to ultimately separating uh, from your wife. Marriage requires conflict resolution, and it, it doesn't seem like that's something that that community is able to hold on to. But there's a great desire there, right? There's a great desire to have control of emotions and actions. The question would be, can it be achieved? Maybe a better question is, how do you create, as the Navy SEALs want to, the set-apart man? Can you create the set-apart man? Well, we believe the answer to that is yes. And we believe the answer to that comes from one source, the Bible. We believe the Bible is perfectly adequate to be able to have a man set apart for the purpose of of God, ultimately. So you can see in your notes there, we'll move to the section called presuppositions. Because in saying that to you, and in you affirming that the Bible has the answer to create the set-apart man, we have presuppositions. That's a presupposition. You're coming to the table, to the conversation in biblical counseling, you're coming with preconceived ideas. And I would ask you the question, who revealed those things to you? Who gave you the idea that the scripture has the ability to show you how to have a set-apart man or a set-apart lifestyle? You'll remember that Jesus said to Peter after Peter made his incredible confession of Christ in Matthew 16, Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's the Spirit of God who reveals knowledge, wisdom about anything spiritual. Where does the wisdom come from that informs your beliefs? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 say this about wisdom and understanding. Paul says this to the Corinthian church. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those, or yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Then in verse 12, he goes on to say, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So if we were to state our presupposition as we approach life and we start thinking about our worldview, we would say this, the inspired and inerrant word of God is the only authoritative source by which we can know absolute truth. It is totally sufficient to address any issue of life. How can we confirm this? Well, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, which says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So do those words mean exactly what they say in the order that they say them? Or is there something lacking in the scriptures? There's no room in that verse 
for the scriptures to be lacking. It says they're absolutely dominant, controlling, and authoritative perfectly. Well, we move from presuppositions, and what I wanted to do is so we, have, we have presuppositions, preconceived ideas. The Holy Spirit is the one who communicates these to us. But how do we go about developing what we know? How, how, how do we take to maybe a science to it? Is there a need to know how we know what we know? Did you follow that? How we know what we know? What is the basis of our logic? What are our sources? How do you extract meaning from a text? How, why do we use the word Trinity when it's clearly not in the Bible? What can be known about the day of the Lord or the kingdom of God? What is the case for church membership when it's not explicitly mentioned in the scriptures? Well, theologians have put forward the theological pyramid. Hopefully you see that there on your notes, the theological pyramid, to show on paper the way that we must reason from the scripture to doctrine. And ultimately, once you've reasoned from scripture to doctrine, you can reason to accurate practice, the practice. And if you look where we're headed to, practical theology up at the top, level five on that, that's biblical counseling, the practice of systematic theology the putting into practice of the things that we know as absolute truth. We have here the theological pyramid. There's five levels on the pyramid. Level one starts at the bottom. You have to have a base, a foundation to make this pyramid. Everything gets built off of this. So foundational, so important. We understand that to be the scriptures, the canon of the scriptures. It must be established. In our church, we've talked in the last couple of weeks about higher criticism and textual criticism and how they play roles into helping us understand what scriptures we use, and how accurate they are. We understand that 6,000 or so fragments of scriptures have been collected over the last 2,000 years that help give warrant or understanding to the scriptures that we hold in, in, as truth today. We use Bibles that conform to the Alexandrian text type. We talked about that versus the Byzantine text type, which is the, the basis or the foundation for the New King James and the King James Version. And the reasoning is that the Alexandrian is dated earlier the Byzantine text came later, but the Byzantine text, there's more of them, and we found them sooner. When did we find the Alexandrian text, the ones that were the first written? We found them most recently. So the Alexandrian text go back, and they take us back to the first and second century, closest then, nearest to the originals. So you can see we need to have an understanding of the scriptures that we hold on to so we know what we're defending. That's what we want to set in level one of the pyramid to help establish and get all the way to practical theology, you've got to know what you're defending. We're defending the truth of God's word from the inerrant, infallible scriptures as they've been passed down to us. The second level, the second level, it says in your notes there, exegetical study. We call this hermeneutics, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, when we're looking at the grammar and the syntax of words that we found on these parchments, Hermeneutics, the extracting of the meaning from the text. Best word picture that comes with this one is taking a tea bag and sticking it into hot water. Tea is extracted out of the tea bag and it permeates the water. Well, when I'm presenting God's word to you, I don't want my ideas or my preconceived bad biblical or bad worldview to intercede with what the scriptures say. I want to just extract from the scriptures the word of God and then offer it to you just as you would want to have a nice cup of hot tea, not coffee, not tea and leaves mixed together. You just want the tea. So 
So that's what we want to do with the scriptures, extract the T. Hold on to that imagery because it plays a big deal in our society today. I want to just go, oh, so the, the hermeneutic that we use, that we employ, the science that we use to extract the meaning, we're not talking about allegory. That's another hermeneutic that some people will use. The hermeneutic that we use, that we employ, is the grammatical, historical hermeneutic. We want to understand things grammatically. We want to look at the words and the word order in the sentence. But we also want to understand it in its historical context, the grammatical, historical hermeneutic. That's how we extract information out of the text. We dive into words and the word order in the sentences. And this is very important. You might get the question this time of the year, Jeremiah 10, 2, and 3 says, God doesn't like trees in our homes, so we shouldn't have a Christmas tree. Is that a proper hermeneutic that came to that reasoning or that conclusion? (laughs) See, failure at understanding the scriptures with the proper hermeneutic could lead to the wrong result, and it might cost you all the joy of worshiping that idol in your house, the Christmas tree. (laughs) Get your Christmas tree. The next thing you might see is the social gospel coming out of Acts 4.32. Acts 4.32, the selling off of all the goods so that we had the early church everything, having everything in common. And people say, we need to feed the poor. We need to give away all the church's resources. We need to make the church wide open to society. We need to blend in. Really? Is that the way that you're supposed to understand Acts 4.32? Or is there a different way to understand Acts 4.32? Was it prescribing behavior that we're supposed to do? Or was it describing the behavior of the church at that time? Another instance of bad hermeneutics, failed hermeneutics. How many people messed this verse up? Genesis 1.8 says this. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. So where did millions of years come from? How did they get interjected into that text? What did the original author mean when they penned Genesis 1.8? What about the repetition of the words evening and morning through that whole section of scripture? What about the consecutive numbering of the days? It seems like the word day really meant morning and evening and and the cyclical nature of our our life here on earth. See, if if you mix up the hermeneutic, you can walk away with some pretty bad and ugly interpretations that offer false and wrong worldviews and they have major implications for how you live because what I'm going to contend tonight is that how you believe affects how you behave. And if you believe wrongly and you get set off course, and you're trying to get to New York, you might just find yourself down in Florida. Actually, I would want it the other way around. But Another way that you can mess up hermeneutically is to take a look at Satan and, and how he tried to tempt Christ. And he quoted scripture in Luke 4. Satan quotes scripture, the third temptation of Christ. After tempting him on his humanity, you've been hungry for 40 days. Go ahead and make yourself some bread out of that rock. Christ said, no, the scriptures say this. And then he said, well, this is my earth and this is my kingdom and I'll give you all this power over here, this dominion. And Christ said, no, that's not what we're supposed to do. Satan finally tempted him by quoting God's word and hermeneutically butchering two of God's words, two two sections of scripture. And Christ said, no, this is the scripture that applies to your false idea, to your wrong understanding. Same thing happened in Genesis chapter three, chapter three, right? When When Satan tempted Eve. So we need to have an accurate understanding of our hermeneutic, the way that we extract meaning from the text. So we're building this theological pyramid. We started at the bottom with the canon of scripture. Then we moved into the hermeneutic. 
Next, once, you, once you're extracting information from the text, now that you need to see that we can make propositional statements of truth. The Bible makes statements, very, very short, concise statements about life, about truth, about an understanding of God and man. Biblical theology can be stated in, in sentences very clearly. You could say something like, men are chosen by Jesus from John 15, 16. You could say that we are elect and predestined by God. You can get that from Ephesians chapter 1. You could say that men are spiritually dead even as they're alive physically. You could see that in Ephesians chapter 2. So once you've got now propositional truth statements, you can move and advance up that pyramid to the next level, which would be level 4. Take your Take all of your propositional truth statements and gather them topically so that you can understand comprehensively anything about one particular subject. So you can look at the bottom of your list there and you can see systematic theology. That list goes and spells out why you would want to have all these truth statements gathered and collated so that they help to build a doctrine about Christ, a doctrine about salvation, a doctrine about the church, a doctrine about God, a doctrine about the Holy Spirit, a doctrine about man. So we're moving toward systematic theology and the creation of a wealth of propositional truth statements that declare something about God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, man, and the nature of salvation. One clear example of this, the word Trinity. Trinity is the fruit of The word Trinity, the shorthand Trinity, is the fruit of proper systematic theology. It's the the fruit of proper hermeneutics, the extracting from the text. Calvinism is a, a, a systematic theology. It focuses on five areas related to salvation. Consider just the first point of Calvinism, total depravity. Do you think that you could make a case for total depravity? Are the scriptures and are there are there enough weight in the scriptures that you've read that could support this idea that man is totally depraved? Does total depravity get its support from great amounts of propositional truth from accurate hermeneutics? The answer to that is yes. Yes, we can support and understand total depravity of man from a wealth of scripture, from the very beginning, all the way through into Revelation. It's all there for us to understand the idea of total depravity. So total depravity is shorthand. It's, it's a shorthand term that helps us understand a wealth of propositional truth statements of fact that come right out of the scriptures. So what? So we've got the scriptures. We've got proper hermeneutics. We've got propositional truth statements. We've got doctrine. We've got systematic theology. We have a system. We know what the author said. Big deal. So what? What does it mean? What it means is you need to now take it and put it into practice. To complete the full thought of theology, you must take it into practical theology. It must become part of your life. You can't have all this understanding of Christ and understanding of the church an understanding of the God and of, of God Himself, an understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit, and then just walk outside this building and go off into that world and do whatever you want. What you do out there has to conform to what you know. That's what we're after in biblical counseling. 
So you move to level five, practical theology, where conclusions about life are made. The practice of theology is, is formulated. It says, I have a worldview that conforms to reality. It says, I, I know how to live, especially how to be reconciled to God. And further, it says, I can be a blessing to others living and teaching this worldview. Biblical counseling falls within the discipline of practical theology. Having agreement with theologians in the other areas, it's necessary to take these propositional truths, these systematic truths, and then apply them to the lives of people. First person you apply it to, yourself. You've got to teach yourself the gospel every day, over and over again. But of note, specifically, level five, practical theology, without levels one to four, is not biblical counseling. Okay? And how often do you see this today? People want to do level five without having any of the other levels stacked up in order. Sure. Level five, practical theology, is not biblical counseling without levels one to four. People will jump in and try to tell you a worldview system and biblically counsel you without having any foundation from which to do that, any biblical foundation. Does that make sense? It's going on all over society today. You have to, if you're going to offer anything of value to somebody, biblical counseling is the, is the tip of the spear. It's the tip of the spear. And, and the, the worst thing that could happen is if you have someone come in and articulate a worldview, get you all spun out of shape about their worldview, and it's not founded on the truth that we just presented. That's, that's why we take the time to walk through that whole pyramid, because all of those are important. We, we do not advocate a generic system sprinkled with Scripture. Many people are currently telling the church how to change and grow, yet they have zero theological training. Counseling is biblical when Scripture is active in the process, and it functions, and, and it has functional control over the methods and the change and, and the growth that happens. And one example that I have of this came up uh, recently in 2016. There's an Internet blogger who's got a television series, her and her husband, they have a, a church plant as well. Her name's Jen Hatmaker, and her husband is Brandon. And they came out within the, uh, in 2016, and they took a stance that was a change or a deviation from what they'd previously understood about LGBT community and gay marriage. And so now they affirm gay marriage and the LGBT community. And they said in their blog post that they went into great depths in the scriptures to understand what God's word really says, diving into the Greek and the Hebrew to really make sense of it. You know, she's got books that were written by Lifeway, and Lifeway's response to this was to pull, their, pull her books. They, they pulled her. Individuals and groups of Christians rebuked her and her husband publicly, and yet with their popularity, they, had, they have the opportunity to use their influence and, rec- and their recognition to propagate error, to propagate garbage theology, unhelpful theology. They're trying to operate on level five without having accurately done the work in levels one through four. They've ad- they, they have advocated a practice of life that is completely at odds with all the tenets of biblical Christianity. And the rebuke for them was swift. Also of note, though, at the same time, levels one through four without level five is incomplete and ineffective. Our lives aren't just meant to be a chasing of the scriptures for knowledge in and of itself. We're not advocating monkery, right? We're not looking for people to tie themselves off in a corner and just go study 
24-7 for years and years and years and never put it into practice by living in the communities in which we live. Pure theology informs how you believe so that it can affect how you behave. Theology wasn't given in a vacuum. It has rules, it has expectations, and it demands obedience. Our job is not to dispense the word, but to minister it. Ultimately, what you know informs what you do. So then, what must we know? What understandings must be achieved to affect our behavior? And that's where we look at systematic theology. Understanding the person of God, the person of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit. The collection of gathered truths properly understood from solid exegesis and the historical grammatical hermeneutics. We call these doctrines. Jude in his letter in verse 3 says this, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. I would say to you that doctrine helps us to do this. Systematically knowing what we believe helps us to earnestly defend the faith. After all, we're Bereans, right? We study the scriptures. We don't merely accept the teachings of men, but we assent to what we know from the scriptures and what we've researched from God's word. We demand our pastors and teachers affirm the word of God. And so what I want to do now is take a look at some representative areas of systematic theology just to give you an idea and then tie these off with the implications of these doctrines. So we'll take a look first at theology proper. Theology, theos plus uh, the suffix theology means the study of God, the study of God. Theology, the study of God. What do we know about God? How does this affect our lives? Well, what we know about God is that God is triune. God is three persons with one essential nature. In the Godhead, there is unity of essence, of being, of nature, and then there's a relational component. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In the Godhead, we see order, authority, unity, diversity, and perfection. God is the creator, and moreover, he is our greatest protector, provider, and defender. I want you to hang on to that one. God alone is our greatest protector, provider, and defender. You'll find way too often than not, that's what gets people tripped up. Sometimes in our lives, we think we're our best protector, provider, or defender. God is full of perfection, some belonging just to him and some that he shares with us. You think back on Genesis 1-1, where it all begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from that, he owns all things, right? He owns all things. This is the God that we serve. He made us in his image. And all things will yield glory to God, absolutely. If anybody has a problem with that ever, if, if that can't be the first thing that you get out of a Christian's mouth, there's a problem with that Christian's understanding and worldview. Because the whole aim of their existence is to glorify God because it's his. He owns it all. He owns you. Can you see the implications of this? Can, can you see how this affects a, a life? When, when someone comes to you with challenges or problems, one of the first things that you could recognize with, with challenges and problems of life 
is the minimization of God and who he is and how much he loves his creation and how much he's looking out for you. And Romans 8.28, which says, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And they minimize God and they maximize their challenge or problem in life. You see this? It's important to know how big God is. Because the first thing we as humans want to do is make God little so that we can boss him around. And that doesn't work. The next thing that I would have you take a look at would be anthropology, the study of man. In order to biblically counsel somebody, it's really helpful to have an accurate view of man, who man is, what his substance is, what he's made of. He's God's creation made after God's image and according to God's likeness. This means that he's not just an animal. How many people in that world out there are telling everybody else, you're just an animal? They're teaching that to the kids in the school system. You're just an animal. What behavior? If you just cast your mind down and think about this. If you tell a kid that he's just an animal, play that out five years. How does that look in that person's life five years later when they've been told over and over and over again, you're just an animal, you're just an animal, you're just responding to your impulses and instincts. Go out and get life. Make it happen. Survival of the fittest. Name it and claim it. Is that, is that the accurate view or accurate understanding of a worldview? What is that system? What are those thoughts? What are those ideas? What are they going to get in someone's life? How much trouble, how much pain did those seeds that you're planting, how much pain did they create over the course of that person's life? Aren't we living in the cesspool of that right now? You need to have an accurate understanding of man. Man also is not an animal. He's also not a victim. And man is not God. He's not autonomous. He's not independent. Rather, he is fully dependent on God. Man has an intellect. He's got emotions. He's got reason. He's got certain attributes of God. He's directed by his heart. Jesus says in, in Luke 6, 5, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I have you turn your sheet over right now. Take a look at this. Turn your Bibles to Mark 7, that top right verse on the corner. Mark 7, 20 to 23. We're going to read from 17, actually. Mark 7, 17. I want you to see what Jesus has to say about man and man's heart. This, this is the kind of thing, these verses, when you collate them, when you gather them, when you read them collectively, doing the work of looking at and analyzing the propositional truth that comes from Scripture, and then formulating a systematic theology, a doctrine of man, anthropology, it really helps to put a picture on who man is. That's what we see here in, in Mark 7, 17. This is Christ. When, when Jesus had left the crowds and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And, while he, and, and he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, 
sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. It's not what comes from outside and comes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of the man that defiles him. It's what's brewing around and boiling. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's what's brewing around in here and comes out of his mouth. That's what defiles a man. Boy, knowing that, that sets biblical counseling right on the rails. You can actually get somewhere in a counseling session when someone understands and has a right and accurate view of anthropology, of an understanding of man, because society's not selling this. There's no money in this for society, so they pull out of this because even if it's truth, it doesn't make them money. It doesn't help lives if you don't have this. Next, I want to give you on on your sheet, please write on this sheet of paper, I didn't put this on yours and I'm going to change it on mine, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. We're going to finish with that verse, but I want to turn with you to Genesis 6, 5 now. Turn in your Bible to Genesis 6, 5. I'll, do, I'll tell you Genesis 6-5 again. The one you're writing down right now is Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. And when I hear pages turning, you're going to turn to Genesis 6-5. We're getting ready to flood the earth. Man's corruption had run rampant. And God says, God says through Moses, he says this, Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Turn with me to, so then you say, well, that's, that's pre-flood, Oliver. You know, after the flood, things changed, right? Turn to Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 17, 9. It's on your sheet there. You can read it. I'd like you to see it in your scriptures, though, so you know there's not a typo there. Jeremiah 17.9, the word of the Lord from Jeremiah. He says this, Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I was reading from the Psalms earlier this morning and I thought, well, that needs to go on the sheet too. And you can see that on your page there. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So you take all these and you start to collate and formulate an understanding of anthropology, what man needs, how man changes, what man's biggest problems are. How can a man change? This is where we turn to Ezekiel 36. Turn to Ezekiel 36 and let's see. What, what does man, what does he need? How can this change happen? What must be done for this wicked, sin-filled heart? Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. The word of the Lord through Ezekiel says this. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. 
That's change, is it not? That's change. That's power. Did you notice also the washing and the cleansing? Oh, this, this, this is new creation, right? This is the new creation of the New Testament. There's power there. There's power there that has to be put on display to this world. It must be. Why? Ephesians 2.10. God prepared good works from beforehand that you should walk in them. And I would tell you, and you know this, without the power source of the Holy Spirit, how can you begin to do one of the good works that God prepared from beforehand that you should walk in? You must have him or you will never be pleasing to him. You see how doctrine, you see how the formulation of doctrine, understanding man can set someone's path right? Do you know how many times in a counseling room these truths, these simple truths, they're just not connected in someone's mind? They haven't been shown. Is it any wonder? Do you, do you see and feel and, and receive the teaching and instruction that's out in this world? There's desperate need for this kind of instruction and correction. That's what we as the church help to do. We help our members to understand and see things. You come alongside a brother or sister because you've spent time in systematic theology. You've spent time thinking through the propositional truths. You've spent time understanding and sitting under good teaching to know these things. So this is anthropology. And I I give this to you because... I want you to see that man's thoughts and beliefs, they affect his actions and behaviors. Ultimately, though, ultimately, the actions and the behaviors are symptoms. They're symptoms, right? Any outward activity that a man will do, um, if someone's a hoarder, what, what, what what does the hoarding tell you about the person? That's their outward activity. That's the symptom. What's going on? Is there a bigger disconnect? What do we ultimately need to look at with someone who's a hoarder? We need to look at their heart, right? The heart would be the place where we'd be, we'd be able to draw out, as Proverbs says, extract out. A man of understanding can see the plan that that hoarder is making and extract out of them, out of that deep water that they've mixed themselves into, extract out of that truth and show them and put them on a right path. Thoughts and belief. What you, what you know, your understandings, what is truth, what you put your faith in, who you trust, that's the inner man. And the inner man demonstrates and acts out what he believes. The actions then become symptoms of something going on internally, that internal struggle that man has. Well, I've given you two there in the way of systematic theology. I've got six more, but we're, we don't have time. I want, I want to get to... Um, in, in particular, a case study. So if you have any questions about Christology, just think about the implications of getting Jesus wrong. Right? Think about the implications of getting the cross wrong, getting mixed up on the imputation of sin, getting mixed up on Christ being the propitiation for our sin, Christ being the parakletos from 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He's our paraclete. He's our advocate. He's our counselor. He's the one standing before God and and petitioning God on our behalf. How critical is that for an accurate understanding of how to live in this world and to get through our sin, right? And to restore and reset our life. It's so critical to understand these things. So from Christology to pneumatology to ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church, understanding that Christ is building his church and that you're supposed to be part of the church, I have great need to tell many counselees Look, you, you need to be influenced. 
by the church. You need to be participating in the church. You need to be a member. You, you need to serve at church. Eschatology. What does eschatology give us? Why would we study eschatology? Why do we need to understand the kingdom of God? The day of the Lord. Why do you need to put time into understanding the day of the Lord? What does it give you? Hope. It gives you hope to know that all of this makes sense. In one mind, all of this makes sense perfectly to God. And he's revealed to us sufficiently all that we need to know to live here and go through this life. And this life is a joy and a blessing. And if you're filled with the hope that comes from eschatology and ecclesiology and hamartiology, the study of sin and Christology, then you have something to offer a life that's hurting. That's what I want to take you to next is a life that's hurting. Case study. What would you do with a woman named Mary who comes into your office and she can't use her toilet seat because she believes an intruder had broken into her home while she was gone and contaminated the toilet seat with HIV? What do you do with Mary who collects all her family's laundry under the bed because her fear of the dirty clothes prohibits her from washing the clothing? So just shove it under the bed. What do you do with Mary, Mary who washes her hands incessantly and considers every surface with suspicion because all the surfaces are crawling with AIDS. The AIDS virus is on all of them. So wash and clean and wash and clean. What do you do when Mary tells you that she's a Bible-believing Christian and has been for years? What do you do with Mary? Well, Dan Wickert ran into this problem. And if you read the book, Counseling the Hard Cases, this is his story. This is what he puts forward. Mary walked into his office. And at this point, I would ask you, like Dan might have been thinking, what's a reasonable person believe about this behavior? What do you believe about this behavior of Mary? The toilet seat, the clothing under the bed, obsessively washing her hands. Is this reasonable behavior? Is it reasonable that people live like this? No. No. Is Mary enjoying life? No. Is she living her best life now? No. No, Mary is not satisfied. Mary said to Dan in meeting number one, she said, I'm depressed and I'm anxious. Ooh, there's a whole bunch of people out there that believe that the church doesn't have the answers to, to handle depressed and anxious behavior. That doesn't have the answer to fix Mary and, and this collection of problems that she has. Can you see through them? What would you say to Mary right now? How would you counsel Mary? What does Mary need? I'm looking at all of you and I'm believing that every one of you would have answers for Mary that would help to build her hope and take it off of the idol that she's made and move it on to Christ. But I said, the idol that she's made, what idol has she made? How do you get to understand the idol that she's made and how she's moved her thoughts away from Christ to what? What? What did she move her thoughts to? It's a great question to ask. So biblical counseling does. It gets to the answer. What's in the heart? What's the heart focused at? What does it want? You know, I'm, I'm a, I appreciated Mary's story you got a counselee sitting in your office and saying, I'm depressed, I'm anxious. Great, that's fantastic because at this we have an admission that life can be better and that life can be different, that she doesn't know what to do next. Would you say that something's missing in Mary's worldview, this Christian of at least six, seven years? Would you say something's missing in her worldview? What's missing? Well, further conversations reveal this. The last four years have been characterized with irrational, debilitating, and intensifying fear of AIDS. 
Four years earlier, she was married to Ben. Ben, prior to marriage, was promiscuous. And there was need to have STD testing, which ultimately he did pass, but that started to make her think about AIDS and HIV. In that process, though, Mary was also told that she couldn't conceive children, and so she was devastated. So here's a woman who's engaged. She's waiting for HIV testing. She has a conversation with a doctor that says she can't conceive, and all the way to the world's pressing down as we're heading toward the wedding date. Pressure, pressure. And did she respond to the one set of information accurately? And did she respond to the next set of information accurately? And did she respond to the timing of the wedding and what the Lord was doing with that accurately? In the process, Mary was told that she'd have a hard time conceiving. She was devastated. Fear settled on Mary. The dream of family was gone. Would Ben be disappointed? More fear, more pressure on her. Could she ever be happy settling into this kind of life? It led to jealousy and bitterness of her friends who were getting married and having kids. Her simple operations began to shut down. Picking out clothes in the morning became too much of a challenge. Her anxiety had provoked a disabling lack of energy, an overwhelming desire to just stay in bed, and severe depression, emotional turmoil. Mary began isolating herself, ending her commitments at church, which is why we do pastoral phone calls and we watch people's attendance because it's important. Her relationship with Ben then became strained. Fear dominated her mind and it dictated her schedule. So I ask you the question, does the Bible say anything about fear? It says a lot about fear, doesn't it? It says that the, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, solving her dilemma, Dan says in the first session, quote, I focused on her understanding of the gospel. Her level of understanding in this area would determine the trajectory of our time together. Boy, that's interesting. How many psychologists or psychiatrists would make that statement? You come into my office and I hear these challenges coming out of your mouth and I say, I focused on her understanding of the gospel. Wow. Where was she looking for satisfaction? What temporary thing had captured her eye, her heart, her mind? How many hours did she devote in worship to cleaning and washing and worrying? What lies did she continue to believe that kept her trapped in this cycle? Well, the answer is she was actively pursuing an AIDS-free life more than she was pursuing Christ. You get that? She was actively pursuing an AIDS-free life more than she was pursuing Christ. The counselor has to come in and see and make these connections because you've got someone trapped in their own worldview, their own ideas, their own faulty and bad theology. I would suggest to you that everyone sitting in here is sitting with and living with in your own mind some amount of bad theology. And the reason you come to church and the reason you circle back again for a Sunday night session is to get more truth in and more bad theology out, right? That's what Mary's greatest need is. Satisfaction alone must be found in Christ alone. All the cleaning and decontamination efforts were false refuges, which consistently never provided the perfect security that she desired. In fact, they only compounded her problems and made them worse. 
Dan asked, why is AIDS so terrifying? And he learned Mary's dread of death, Mary's fear of contaminating her family, Mary's fear of her friends passing judgment on her. Consider what she's believing when she believes these things. She believes that death has a sting. Does that sound contrary to something that you've heard before? She has a short-term focus. Immediately clean this right now. Not a long-term focus. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. She believes in a little God. And we believe in a big God who knows all things, particularly where the HIV is at and whether or not it needs to be cleaned up. She believed that she was entitled to family. But on this earth, are you guaranteed family? She believed that she needed family and needed friends. But we in the church believe that we need Christ alone and our joy comes from him alone. She had a demand that things be clean. But Paul says, I'm content in all circumstances. She had a demand for respect. But she was honoring God last, not honoring God first. Bad theology breeds bad conclusions which breed bad actions. Boom, boom, boom. Theology, conclusion, action. She said, I don't know how to let it go. The solution, Dan said this. Dan said, I pointed out to Mary that her wavering emotions were founded on shifting lies. I pointed out to Mary that her wavering emotions were founded on shifting lies. Mary had believed that she was her best provider, protector, and defender. What do we say about theology? Who's your best provider, protector, and defender? And what was Mary proving that she believed in all the incessant washing and cleaning? That she was her best provider, protector, and defender. She could usher in for herself the best possible future. She'd made an idol out of good health and safety. And she had made an idol out of control. Do you see the whirlpool these idols made in her life? They have you chasing your tail all over the place. They have you stuck in the hamster wheel of your own thoughts. You can never have control. Can you? Can you have control in this life? That's not afforded to you. That was a failed thought from the beginning for her. You have no right to comfort or safety. God gives circumstances to test us all and he will pull you right out of your comfort and right out of your safety. Why? Why would he do it? To get the glory out of you that he deserves. Her own lies dominated her head. So how do you make the lies go away? How do you establish a firm foundation? Well, this is what uh, Dan went into doing for her. He solved the problem this way, by laying a biblical foundation, as we have discussed earlier tonight. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than two-edged, any two-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Romans 8.28, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to men. God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can handle. But when the temptation comes, God will also provide a means of escape. Are these true? 
Are they true always? Is there any set of circumstances that defy those three scriptures? There's none. Is God good? Is he good always? Mary's conclusion. I want to read this to you before we close. She said this when Dan was writing the book and he asked her for some follow-on or some thoughts regarding her life as she had moved away and been away for greater than a year. She had a son and her husband, and she said this. This is Mary's conclusion. My life is not my own. I daily choose to submit it to my Creator, and I have no limits or expectations for what He will do with it. I only know that it will be good. The first major part of my life was consumed with thoughts of myself, my safety, and my happiness. I had built my own personal kingdom and was unwilling to accept anything less. Now I'm free, free to serve, free to love the unlovely, free to offer hope to the hopeless, free to get dirty in people's lives, free to say yes when my God calls me. My greatest passion in life is to lift Jesus high. This is a woman that is not trapped by her bad theology anymore. And when she says, now I'm free, You know exactly what that means. Victory. Victory through a person and a personal relationship because of the right worldview that had been established on certain foundations and had the right practical application. This is the worldview that biblical counseling advances. This is the worldview that we all must have if you're to be of any value at all to yourself, to your neighbors, and to the church. This is the value that affords comfort and hope in the midst of the worst agony, depression, anxiety, or any challenge that any human being will encounter. These scriptures are true. They're absolutely certain. So is our salvation, and so is our eternal destiny. These are the things that we must share in order to pull any of our brothers and sisters out of any trouble that this life offers. Amen? Amen. Well, with that, we're right at time, and I'd like to just stick around after I pray, and if you had any question about a circumstance that you wanted to talk about, I'd be more than happy to discuss those. Again, we focused on worldview tonight, and I wanted to present that to you from the worldview perspective. That's what's being advanced. Pray with me. Father God, we're so thankful, thankful that you have given us through your scriptures the opportunity to have a right and true worldview to understand truth perfectly and to know that truth solves and answers any human dilemma. Lord, there's nothing that we have been overcome by or overtaken with that hasn't been already done by the generations before us and your spirit has been sufficient to contend with anything this world has to offer or throw at the human life. Lord, our experience comes down to knowing you, to fearing you, to loving you, and to being obedient to your commandments. Help us to be faithful in doing that from this day forward. We pray these things in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.